Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 211, The Enablers, Part 2. From my Patreon version of Russian Rulers, where you can find it at patreon.com slash Russian Rulers, I did a series on Stalin's enablers, who enabled him to create the kind of havoc, destruction, and death that he did during his reign. Enjoy the episode, and don't forget, for only $3 a month, you can get over 40 episodes and two a month, every month, guaranteed. And so if you want to support the uh, podcast, please go over to patreon.com. And I thank those of you who have joined recently. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, and see you later. Bye. Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Patreon edition, The Enablers, Part 2. Last time, we reviewed the lives of three members of Joseph Stalin's team, Vyacheslav Molotov, Sergo Orzhonarkidze, and Lazar Kaganovich. Today, we'll look at four more members in this three-part series. They are Sergei Kirov, Andrei Zhdanov, Georgi Malenkov, and Anastas Mikoyan. Sergei Moronovich Kirov, born Sergei Moronovich Kostrakov, came into the world on March 27, 1886, in Urzum in the Vyatka Governate, now known as the Kirov Governate, part of the then Russian Empire. His was a very sad youth, as his father abandoned the family in 1890 when he was four, and his mother died of tuberculosis three years later in 1893. He was to spend a short time with his paternal grandmother, along with his three surviving siblings. Kirov's grandmother could not support the children on her meager pension, so he was hustled off to a local orphanage. In 1900, Sergei was given a scholarship to go to engineering school in Kazan. He would successfully complete his degree in 1904, but would turn toward Marxism and join the RSDLP, becoming the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. He would move to Tomsk in Siberia, where he would become a very active revolutionary, which would lead to his arrest in 1906 and imprisonment for three years. He would move to the Caucasus, where he would remain until abdication of Tsar Nicholas II in February 1917. Kirov would become a leader during the Russian Civil War. As Simon Sebag Montefiore describes Sergei in his book, Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, quote, During the Civil War, Kirov was one of the swashbuckling commissars in the North Caucasus, beside Orjanokidze and Mikoyan. In Astrakhan, he enforced Bolshevik power in March 1919 with liberal bloodletting. More than 4,000 were killed. When a bourgeois was caught hiding his own furniture, Kirov ordered him shot. Kirov was rewarded for his activities during the war by being named first secretary of the Communist Party of Azerbaijan in 1921. Kirov was said to have loved his time here. He was also a very strong supporter of Stalin, especially in the fight against Lev Kamenev and Grigory Zinoviev. With Zinoviev's ouster as the first secretary in Leningrad, Kirov would be asked to replace him. As Sheila Fitzpatrick puts it in her book on Stalin's team, quote, 
Kirov, the designated successor to Zinoviev, was still hoping to avoid the Leningrad job and complained very bitterly in private letters about his terrible mood in a very, very difficult situation. The 24-hour workday and the hostility of the Leningraders. It was a desperate fight, unlike any we've had before. And at first, he wasn't sure they would win. But they did, and he was stuck with Leningrad, which, after a while, he came to love. At the 17th Congress of the All-Union Communist Party in early 1934, Kirov was to make a real name for himself. He would give, quote, the speech of Comrade Stalin is the program of our party. Here he would lay one praise after another on Stalin's earlier speech. It was the election to be a member of the Congress that may have sealed Kirov's fate, though. Instead of voting for someone, the assembled delegates would vote against someone by crossing their names off. Stalin had 292 votes against him, while Kirov had only three. Lazar Kaganovich was the official vote counter, and he fixed the outcome in Stalin's favor. Also, several old Bolsheviks approached Kirov, asking him to become the supreme leader. He rejected the offer and reported it to Stalin. Kirov was incredibly charismatic and very handsome, and by now wildly respected and liked, which must have irked Stalin. On December 1, 1934, Leonid Nikolaev walked into the Smolny Institute's offices where Kirov worked and climbed up to the third floor. When Sergei rounded a corner, Nikolaev shot him in the back of the head. There were lots of rumors that Stalin ordered Genrik Yagoda to have Kirov assassinated. However, the two men were thought to be very close. I'm just going to say that Stalin benefited greatly from the death of Sergei Kirov and leave it at that. What was to come out of Kirov's murder was the excuse for Stalin to begin the Great Purge. It would cost the lives of an estimated one million people. Next up, we have Andrei Alexandrovich Zhdanov, who was born on February 26, 1896, in Mariupol, Ukraine. Of his early life, I wasn't able to find much aside from his father being an inspector of public schools in the area, who died when Andrei was only four years old. The family was forced to move around the country searching for work, settling in Tver, where Zhdanov was nine. By 1912, Andre was becoming more and more interested in the growing rebellion movement in Tver. Three years later, Zhdanov joined the Bolshevik faction of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, also known as the RSDLP. He was also heavily involved in the anti-war movement that was spreading throughout Russia. After the February 1917 revolution that forced the Tsar to abdicate, Zhdanov became the chairman of the Council of Soldiers' Deputies in Shadrinsk and the Southern Urals. He had been stationed there during his military service in the Russian army. Returning to Tver in 1922, Zhdanov was appointed to be the chairman of the Tver Regional Party Committee, where he was first spotted by Joseph Stalin. In 1924, Andre was appointed to the more prestigious job as chairman of the Regional Party Committee of Nizhny Novgorod for the next 10 years. By 1927, Zhdanov was made a full member of the Central Committee because of his success in industrializing his control area. 
Unfortunately for the region's people, it was done on their backs with numerous fatalities and injuries of workers in the factories. Zhidanov couldn't care less. His most significant contribution to Soviet society would be in 1946 when he began a process known as social realism in the arts. It would later be known as the Zhidanov Doctrine or, or Zhidanov Chechina. Basically, it declared that writers, artists, and musicians had to follow the Communist Party line in all of their work or face persecution. In a nutshell, the doctrine stated, quote, The only conflict that is possible in Soviet culture is the conflict between good and best. Between 1946 and 1947, Zhidanov was the chairman of the Soviet of the Union. His star was rising and was considered the logical successor to Joseph Stalin. That is, until June of 1948, when he was sent to the Common Forum meeting in Bucharest. It was a meeting that was put together to condemn Yugoslavia's communist leader, Marshal Tito. Stalin wanted a strong response, but Zhidanov took a milder stance. This angered the boss, who removed Andrei from all of his posts. This really freaked Zhidanov out and forced him to go into a sanatorium to deal with heart issues that were beginning to plague him due to the incredible stress he was under. In the autobiography, Khrushchev remembers, Nikita remembered that Zhidanov was an alcoholic who was so bad that Stalin would yell at him to quit drinking. It didn't help as he would die on August 31, 1948, apparently of a heart attack. Like he did with Kirov's death in 1934, Stalin would use Zhidanov's death to begin a new purge aimed at Jews when he started the doctor's plot trials in 1951. He would blame the Jewish doctors for killing Zhidanov and plotting to kill all of the communist hierarchy members. This purge would only end with the death of Stalin in 1953. Next up was the man who would replace Zhidanov in 1948 as the likely successor to Stalin, Georgi Malenkov. Born on December 6, 1901, in the town of Orenburg, on the border of the European and Asian continents, he would be the youngest of Stalin's team members. When he turned 18, Malenkov joined the Red Army and became a political worker. He would enter Bauman Moscow State Technical University and be part of a group that would expose fellow students who had backed Leon Trotsky. By 1925, he would leave the university and concentrate on his career in politics. It was around this time that Malenkov would be noticed by Stalin. The latter would put him in charge of the personal records of members of the Communist Party. This would make Georgi a key figure in the upcoming Great Purge of 1937 and 1938. Malenkov would help with the downfall and the execution of Nikolai Yezhov, a man who wanted to make him one of his own top deputies. In February 1941, Malenkov would be appointed to the Central Committee and a candidate member of the Politburo. His loyalty to Stalin would pay off after the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Nazis later that year. Malenkov was put on the State Defensive Committee, the SDC, along with NKVD chief Beria, Voroshilov, and Molotov. His primary responsibility was in aircraft production and post-war in the creation of nuclear weapons. 
By this time, Georgi Malenkov was one of the five most powerful men in the Soviet Union. After the war, he was responsible for getting as many of the top German rocket scientists in the Soviet system, including the V-2 rocket program in Penamunda. Malenkov was obsessed with finding the brightest minds in science and engineering to work under him. He bristled at the insistence of people like Andrei Zhdanov that Communist Party purity was of higher importance than the competency of the people working in any given government agency. Malenkov was the spearhead of the attacks on Soviet war hero Georgi Zhukov. His blistering attacks on the general led to his demotion. Malenkov was now one of Stalin's favorites, especially after the death of Zhdanov. In 1941, the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee was created to fight against Nazi aggression. By 1952, though, Stalin viewed them as a threat to the Soviet Union and had the members arrested, with many being executed. It was Georgi Malenkov who supervised this purge. Another group that Stalin viewed with paranoia were the leaders of Leningrad. Because of their fight against the Nazis during the siege of their city, many were regarded as heroes, something Stalin viewed as a distraction from his greatness. Malenkov was at the forefront yet again of the purge and executions of many of the Communist Party bigwigs in what was known as the second city of the Soviet Union behind Moscow. It would later be known as the Leningrad Affair. Nikolai Vozhnesensky, Mikhail Rodinov, Alexei Kuznetsov, Pyotr Popkov, Y.F. Kapuzin, and P.G. Lazutin were all put on trial on September 20, 1950, along with Leningrad's mayor. The next day, they were all executed. Over 2,000 Communist Party members, along with their families, were exiled to Siberia. Malenkov and Lavrenti Beria were the supervisors of this brutal purge. When Stalin died on March 5, 1953, everyone assumed that Malenkov was to be his successor. On March 6, it was confirmed. But all was not set in stone. By March 14, Nikita Khrushchev took over the position as party leader, with Malenkov staying as premier of the Soviet Union. Backdoor machinations were afoot, with the newly named Presidium members taking sides on who would become the sole leader. As Premier, Malenkov had very different points of view from his predecessor, Stalin. He was amazingly staunchly opposed to nuclear weapons development, as he thought that a war with the West would lead to the end of the world. Malenkov further wanted to improve the standard of living for the people by focusing on consumer items instead of military buildups. This, along with his reluctance to promote younger members into the party, into higher positions, led to his eventual downfall. Malenkov was forced to resign his post as premier in February 1955, remaining for the next two years as a member of the Presidium. In 1957, seeing Khrushchev's tightening grip on power, Malenkov joined Molotov, Dmitry Shepilov, and Lazar Kakanovich in an attempted coup known as the Anti-Party Group. It failed miserably, as Khrushchev was joined by Georgi Zhukov, who had the armies backing against others. Zhukov remembered how Malenkov had turned against him a decade before and repaid his adversary. Malenkov would not only be ousted from the Presidium, 
but he was thrown out of the Communist Party altogether. He would be made a manager of a hydroelectric plant in Kazakhstan. Georgie would have a change of heart about religion. He would later return to the Russian Orthodox Church and become a reader, a low-level clergyman. When he died on January 14, 1988, no notice of his fate made it into the Soviet media. The man who succeeded the legend would die in anonymity. The last person we'll discuss today is Anastas Ivanovich Mikoyan, the only member of Stalin's team to survive through his reign of terror, Khrushchev's, and Brezhnev's regime, eventually retiring in 1965. His ability to survive was best put by Simon Sebag Montefiore in his biography of Stalin when he wrote about Mikoyan the following, quote, The rascal was able to walk through Red Square on a rainy day without an umbrella, without getting wet. He could dodge the raindrops. Born to Armenian parents on November 25, 1898, Mikoyan, like Stalin, received his education through the local seminary, both in Tiflis, Georgia, although many years apart. Over the years, Anastas would grow delusioned with the church and religion in general. Now, here's an interesting thing that I learned while doing research. His younger brother, Artem, became an aircraft engineer who, along with Mikhail Gurevich, created a fighter jet you may have heard of, the MiG, which stands for Mikoyan Gurevich. In 1915, Anastas joined the Bolshevik faction of the RSDLP and became a revolutionary leader almost immediately. Mikhoyan, like Stalin, would pull off a few bank robberies in Baku to help fund the movement. He would continue to stay in the Caucasus after the 1917 revolution and fight for the Red Army there during the Russian Civil War. In 1918, Mikoyan became a commissar of the Baku Soviet. On September 20th, 1918, though, all 26 commissar members would be executed by a firing squad by rivals. That is, all except one, Anastas Mikoyan. How he eluded the executioner's bullets has never been determined. It was apropos since he would, as I said earlier, be the only survivor of Stalin's team later on in life. Here's an excellent description of the young Mikoyan from Sheila Fitzpatrick's book on Stalin's team. Quote, A personal and gregarious young man, he became friends with Kubashev in Turkestan during the Civil War and a few years later bonded with Voroshilov and Orzakunidze when the two of them looked after his young wife, Ashkin and their newborn baby in his forced absence on party business. Fitzpatrick goes on further to say, The young Mikoyan cut a dashing revolutionary figure, dressed as was the custom of those years, in semi-military dress, high boots, belted field jacket, and peaked cap. After a stint on the Volga in the early 1920s, distinguishing himself as the supporter of the Lenin faction, he went back to the South as party secretary in Rostov-on-Don before being summoned to Moscow in 1926 to head the trade ministry. In reality, Mikoyan didn't want to go to Moscow, even though he was offered the position of being a candidate member of the Politburo. A candidate member was just short of being a full one, 
They could attend meetings and make their opinions known. They only couldn't vote on anything. Anastas moved to Moscow, brought along his family, and took the position he held for the next 40 years. One of the most striking things I learned about Mikhoyan was his devotion to his family and many comrades' children. Politburo members were usually very well paid, making far more than the average Soviet citizen. Yet, usually, the Mikoyans were living paycheck to paycheck, not because of an extravagant lifestyle, but quite often they would help families in need, especially those with children. At times, in opposition to Stalin's orders, Anastas and Ashkin would take in children of victims of the numerous purges instead of letting them go to the deplorable orphanages near the gulags. There was a sense of humanity in his heart. But don't let that fool you. Mikoyan was a loyal Stalinist and signed many an execution list provided to him by the NKVD. In 1937, Mikoyan, along with Beria, was sent to the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic capital of Yerevan to destroy the Communist Party leaders. Although Anastas tried to save one of his friends, which failed, he had no problem having all of the old Bolsheviks arrested and executed. During the purge, Stalin referred to similarities between his orders and that of Ivan the Terrible. According to Montefiore, Stalin once said, quote, Who's going to remember all this riffraff in 10 or 20 years? No one. The people had to know he was getting rid of all his enemies. In the end, they all got what they deserved. In response, Mikoyan was purported to say, The people understand Joseph Vizarianovich. They understand and they support you. I even killed too few boyars. He should have killed them all to create a strong state. It is understood that his enablers were more than that. They were complicit with the genocide. Before the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Nazis, the Katyn massacre occurred in split-up Poland. 22,000 Polish military officers and intelligentsia were slaughtered. Mikoyan, along with four other Politburo members, signed the order to kill all those people. When the Germans invaded, Mikoyan was put in control of supplying the Red Army with food, materials, and other necessary supplies. Part of his job was to move all essential industries east, away from the Germans' grasp. Anastas would lose one of his sons, Vladimir, a pilot in the Battle of Stalingrad. After the war, Mikoyan would be named Vice Premier of the Council of Ministers. This time would be the zenith of Mikoyan's career under Stalin. It would soon hit its nadir. Stalin, by 1952, had begun planning another purge. This one would take out his closest associates, like Molotov, Voroshilov, Malenkov, Kaganovich, and Mikoyan. Luckily for them, Stalin died before he could take them all out. The aftermath of Stalin's death would be the power struggle. Who would take the ultimate prize? Mikoyan sat on the sidelines for the most part. He didn't have the ambition of some of his fellow enablers. At first, Anastas was reluctant to execute Beria as they had a long friendship. Still, he was eventually convinced to allow it to happen. Next, Mikoyan backed Khrushchev in his battle against the anti-party group, further strengthening his relationship with the soon-to-be ultimate leader. 
when Khrushchev convened the famous 20th Party Congress, where he gave the uh, famous secret speech denouncing Stalin, by the new secretary, first secretary of the Communist Party, Mikoyan gave the first anti-Stalin speech. Soon, Anastas was named the first deputy premier in Khrushchev's administration. Mikoyan was by now one of Nikita's most trusted allies. He would be helpful in many foreign policies, including the new communist China, along with Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and even the United States. The country he was most associated with helping, though, and that was the one that he wanted to get under the Soviet sphere of influence, was Cuba. Khrushchev sent Mikoyan to Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis to negotiate with Fidel Castro and convince him that the best way forward was to back down on the offensive missiles on the island and remove them instead of provoking a global war. Castro trusted Mikoyan, so after weeks of negotiations, Castro agreed with Moscow's decisions. Mikoyan knew in his heart that Khrushchev's leadership was dangerous to his country, yet he defended Nikita in his new position as chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet, a post that Leonid Brezhnev had previously held. Anastas was by now in failing health, so this new position was actually a figurehead one with fewer responsibilities. When the October 1964 coup successfully overthrew Khrushchev, Mikhail decided to go along with it. Because of his lukewarm backing of the coup, Anastas was asked to retire from the Politburo. This is really different. Most of them were forced out. And some say he was forced, but he was asked to retire, and he was fine with that. And unlike the other enablers, he was given a proper retirement, along with being awarded the highest civilian honor, the Order of Lenin. Anastas Mikoyan would die at the age of 82 on October 21, 1978, of natural causes. He would be buried at the Novodevichy Cemetery in Moscow. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we finish up our series by discussing the life and times of Clement Voroshilov, Simeon Bodjani, Andrei Andreev, and Mikhail Kalinin. So, as always, das vidanya, i spasiba bolshoya.